Thank you, brother, for your kind words. <clears throat> it is a privilege and opportunity to be here this evening. Uh, we too have been looking forward to this, and uh, it'd just be interesting to know what your thoughts were when you first laid eyes on me. When I walked out here, I realized that most of you had never seen me before, and I've been where you're sitting. <clears throat> I know what it's like to sit there in the evening, first evening of meetings, and the speaker is new, and, and he walks in and immediately form an opinion about him, right? <clears throat> be interesting to know what your thoughts were. Be that as it may, <clears throat> we are happy to be here, and I want to bless you and greet you tonight in the name of Jesus. The psalmist David wrote in Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Another way of saying that is, the Lord is, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. And my prayer is that this weekend, that'll be your experience and blessing to just find that rest or have that rest and peace in the Lord, that he is everything we need. There's nothing more that is necessary. If we have the Lord, <clears throat> he's everything we need. So I just want to bless you with that. <clears throat> my name is Phil Byler. My wife is Linda. We come from Lancaster, Pennsylvania area. <clears throat> We've been permitted by the Lord to have 10 children. We count that a, a privilege, an opportunity. We realize not everyone can have the children that they would like to have, <clears throat> but God has permitted us to have 10. So we're so grateful for that. We have, uh, as Brother Sonny mentioned, we have 12 grandchildren, three more on the way. <clears throat> so our family keeps growing. We have five children married and five children living at home with us at this point. <clears throat> They're all home for the weekend. They're involved in various activities this weekend. Our youngest at home is 13, the oldest is 21. So that tells you a little bit about us, <clears throat> about who we are, and hopefully this weekend I'll be able to, we'll be able to connect with some of you and get to know some of you as well. <clears throat> For this evening, <clears throat> I thought I'd talk about Sonny's Rock. How many of you have been to Sonny's home? You know what I mean. You drive in his yard and... When we drove in his yard this afternoon, something caught my eye right away. <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about? You ever been, you've been there. There's this huge rock. I mean, I wonder what it weighs, Sonny. Do you have any guess? Eight tons? So, so how did you get it there? You said you hauled it in in a dump truck, but how did you handle the thing? Okay. Wow. <clears throat> what a piece of piece of work that thing was, and getting it set right there where it is. <clears throat> Anyhow, that rock just kind of inspired me this evening. Uh, it looks like an altar, doesn't it? To me it did. I saw right away, I said, well, Sonny has an altar here. <clears throat> Actually, I'd like to talk about altars tonight. And turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6. I'd like to read some verses here. In fact, I'd like for us to stand, <clears throat> and we'll read them together. And as we read these verses... <clears throat> I'd like to, uh, I want to ask you something when we're done reading. <clears throat> so as you read, you can stand. Our reading will be Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. <clears throat> this uh, passage describes three altars. Now the word altar isn't mentioned in this passage, but there's three altars described. So I'm going to ask you what the are we're done here. So let's just read this together as best we can. Beginning in verse 4. <clears throat> Let's begin. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, 
and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon mine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Thank you. You may be seated. So this passage describes three altars. What are they? Verse 5 and 6, what's the altar described there? Now you keep thinking about that, I'll ask you again. An altar is a place of contact with God. It's a place where our spirit and God's spirit connects, and where God ministers to us and teaches us. By the way, let me regress a bit. I have a greeting for you from Mary Stolzfus. She said, be sure to give my greeting to the church at, uh, at uh, Gladys here. So, very happy to do that. We appreciate her very much in our church there at Peckway, and her and her family are making a valuable contribution there, and we appreciate them. So, a greeting from her. And Nancy Flaud also uh, would send her greetings, so I think she has friends and relatives here as well. <clears throat> Getting back to here, altar. An altar is a place of contact with God, where our spirit connects with God, and God ministers to us and speaks to us in our spirit. We're body, soul, and spirit. Our body, of course, is the part of us that you can see, the hands, feet, and so on. The, the soul is that part of us that, that has feeling. It thinks and it has, has a will. It's, it's where we express moods. It's where we are angry or we have love or we, you know, we're, we have passions. That's our soul. Our spirit, then, is that place where God lives. When we became Christians, it said, the Bible tells us our spirit was quickened or made alive by God's spirit. Before we were Christians, we had a spirit, but it was in a coma, be one way to say it. It wasn't alive. It was there, but it wasn't alive. But when God came into our hearts, when God began living in us, we became a Christian. Then his spirit quickened us, quickened our spirit, made our spirit alive. And it's in that spirit realm that we have connection or contact with God. And an altar for us, an altar represents for us that connection we have with God. Now, back to this passage. Three altars described here. In verse 5 and 6, what's the first altar described here? Again, the word altar does not appear here, but there's an altar described here. What is it? Thank you, brother. Pardon? Our heart. And I'm going to call that personal. Our personal altar. That's right. Our heart. What's the second altar in uh, verse... Uh, Verse 7. Our family altar. And what's the third altar in verse 8 and 9? Okay. A witness to whom? That's right, girl. Sure. That's a public altar. Yeah, so three altars here. Personal altar, a family altar, and a public altar. <clears throat> and that's what I want to talk about tonight. So, Sonny's Rock. When you think of Sonny's Rock, think of these three altars. An altar, again, is a place where we have contact with God, either on a personal level, as a family, or in our public uh, expressions, in our dealings with the public as well. <clears throat> so, what do we mean by a personal altar? First of all, let's talk about altars. One of the interesting studies you can make in the Bible, if you, if you feel led at least, is you can study altars. Altars, uh, altars were made in the Old Testament especially. You read about them a lot. Uh, Noah built, well, Cain and Abel, they had altars. Noah built an altar when he came out of the ark. Uh, Abraham built altars when he first came to Canaan. He, uh, 
The first thing he did, he crossed the, uh, the wilderness from Ur of the Chaldees, where he was from, and came to Canaan. The first thing he did was what? Build an altar. He made a connection with God. And everywhere he wandered about, traveled in Canaan, he left altars behind. It's interesting that there are no places in the land of Palestine that's, called after, that's named after Abraham, at least not that I'm aware of. We have Jacob's well, uh, but besides that, and you have Hezekiah's tunnel, but besides that, you don't have a lot of, of names associated with actual Bible figures, especially not Abraham. In fact, when he, uh, uh, what does Hebrews tell us about Abraham's sojourn in, in uh, Canaan? You remember? It says he looked for a city which what? whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't there to make a name for himself. He wasn't there to leave a legacy of himself behind. He was there to serve his God. And God gave him and his descendants the land of Canaan, but he lived like he didn't own it. He lived like he was a pilgrim and a stranger. He wandered around Canaan and building altars. <clears throat> and, and everywhere he, he, he built an altar, he was reestablishing his connection with God, his personal connection, uh, connection with God. And it's, it's significant to notice that when he went to Egypt, there were no altars there. When he went to Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, who's also his half-sister, he said, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm a little afraid for myself, and, and you're a very beautiful woman, and, and I'm just afraid that oh, my life will be in danger if we go down there and they'll, they want to steal you and you're my wife. We'll just tell them you're my sister, which was a half-truth, and she agreed. And so they went to, to Egypt, and of course, uh, Abram's worst fears were at least partly realized. Uh, Sarah was a beautiful woman, and she was taken into Pharaoh's house. His intention was to make her one of his wives, and I don't know how Abram was going to manage that part of it, but God spoke to Pharaoh in a dream and used Pharaoh to give Abram a pretty firm spanking, sent him back to Canaan where he belonged. The interesting thing is the reason for Abram leaving Canaan and going to, Can uh, to Egypt was what? You remember what happened? There was a famine. Do you suppose that was accidental? That about the time that Abram got to Canaan, there was a famine? You think that was just by chance? Surely not. I think God had a specific design in allowing a famine about the same time that Abram arrives in Canaan. And so <clears throat> Abram wasn't mature in his faith at that point yet. And so he did what comes naturally. When we have a difficulty or if things get tough, what do we do? We move on. We go find greener pastures, right? That's the easy thing out. That's the easy way to do it. And so that's what he did. He, he went on because he wanted to escape the famine. I think God had a role for him, had a calling for him right there where the famine was. He wanted some things. He wanted him to learn some things back there. But as we know the story, Abram went to Egypt and God had to give him a pretty good spanking and sent him back to Canaan. And he came back to the altar he had first built and reestablished his relationship with God. So when you study altars, it's a very interesting study. You, you, you learn about the people that built them. You learn about what happened at those altars. You learn about their revivals they had, experiences like Elijah and Mount Carmel when he, built, when he repaired the altar of the Lord there and the tremendous revival. Just tremendous experiences they had at those altars. You learn about how, what they used to build the altars. <clears throat> you know what, they, what God directed them to use to build altars? Can you tell me? 
Well, at least sometimes. But what kind of stones were they supposed to be? You're right. They were supposed to be virgin stones, not defiled by any human hands or tools. That was very important to God. And so there's a lot you can learn about altars. You know, who built them, what they built them with, the purposes for them, what happened to those altars. There's a lot of interesting things about altars. And I challenge you, if you want an interesting study, look up the word altar and read every passage in the Bible about altars. There's a lot you can learn. But there, when you study altars, I want to emphasize there's two things you can learn about altars. One is they have to be built. They don't grow like trees. You plant a tree out there, an apple tree, you know, and, and maybe after a couple of years it gives some fruit and you can even ignore the thing and you might get wormy ones, but at least you get apples. Usually it makes some kind of fruit. It just kind of goes on and on. Not so with altars. Not so with, uh, an altar is something that doesn't grow by itself. You have to build it. And the second thing you learn about altars is they have to be maintained. An altar left to itself will crumble and fall. Just like this building. This is a beautiful building and somebody put a lot of work into building this and keeping this going. But if this building were vacated, were not used for, say, five years, what would happen to it? It'd fall apart, right? Why? Because it's not being maintained. A building has to be maintained. That's just the nature of, of our world. So altars are that way. They have to be built. They have to be maintained. I, I want to I emphasize that. If you forget everything else I say tonight, I want you to remember those two things. <clears throat> because our relationship with God is something that doesn't grow by itself. It doesn't uh, just happen automatically or go by default. No, it has to be built, has to be maintained. Those two things. So we're going to talk about the three altars. Personal altars, first of all, here in verse 5. It says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. That's a personal connection with God. That's just me and God, no one else. And I want to challenge you and ask you, do you have one? Have you built a personal altar? If you're here tonight and you never build a personal altar, it's time to build one because it won't grow by itself. Just because your parents are Christians, just because they have an altar doesn't mean you have one. You have to build your own altar to God. You have to establish your own contact, your own relationship with God. And <clears throat> that won't happen unless you build it. So first of all, it has to be built. And then it has to be maintained. And we get busy. You know, our lives are full. We have children, grandchildren, jobs, travel. We have things to do and places to go and projects to complete and lots of uh, distractions to take our attention and so on. And we tend to let our relationship with God uh, go sometimes. We tend to let it deteriorate. And so sometimes we have to get back and maintain our altar. It won't maintain itself. <clears throat> this building has a janitor. Or somebody takes care of this building. You know, any, any public place has, has somebody that maintains it and keeps it going. And, and that's a good thing. With our personal altar, though, no one is going to keep it going except us. It, it's, it rests on us. It's our responsibility. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane <clears throat> and Peter and James and John were there with him, you recall in Matthew 26 there, he was praying and he turned and his, the three disciples there with him had fallen asleep. And he said, Peter, can't you stay awake one hour? Watch and pray that you fall not into temptation. And the imperative there is the action is on Peter, not on Jesus. Jesus couldn't do his watching for him. Peter had to do his watching for himself. And that's how it is for us. We have to do our own watching. We have to do our own building. Now, God has his part, his role to play. Of course he does. But... <clears throat> 
We're not Christians because God drags us into the kingdom. He draws us, and then we respond, our free will. We choose to follow him, but we have to make that choice. We, and, and we have to choose to, ma- uh, to maintain <clears throat> that relationship and that choice. It's like any relationship we have here on earth. The, uh, as you know, friends remain friends because they cultivate friendships. And people remain related or have relationships with, the, with each other because we're cultivating these relationships. We're talking on the phone, we're writing emails, sending texts, or you know, we see each other in church or on the job. But we, we, we maintain our relationship, we keep at it. And in a much greater way, it's important that we do that with God. <clears throat> we have to build our, build our altar and then we have to maintain it. Uh, <clears throat> David is an example for us, and I quoted to you Psalm 23 there, where he said, the Lord is my shepherd. Or I'm going to paraphrase it. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. What shall I want? It says there in the King James English. In other words, I have no need of anything. I have no want of anything. That's, that was David's experience at his personal altar. And I want to ask you, is that your experience? Is that the, the kind of relationship you have with God where he is everything you need? You're at peace, you're at rest, and, and uh, you're, you're, uh, you're good with God, and you have that good, strong relationship with Him. That's what a personal altar is all about. There was a time when David was tested severely in 1 Samuel uh, 30, after him and his men had been gone out and they went somewhere, and they came back, and here the, uh, the Amalekites had attacked Ziklag where they were living. You remember that story? And they destroyed the city. They burned the city. And they took all the women and children's captives, slaves, carried them away. And David and his men came back to a burned out city. And it tells us there in 1 Samuel 30 how his men were so angry, they were grieved, it says. I believe that means a very disturbed kind of, of reaction. And they were talking about stoning David. Imagine, killing their leader, blaming him for this, this uh, tragedy that happened. And, and probably David could have uh, thought ahead and maybe kept some soldiers back there to defend the city. I don't know. But whatever the case was, his men were blaming him and were talking about stoning him. And it says there in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6, it says, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He went to his personal altar and found peace. He found strength. He found courage to go on. He found a solution. He found a resolution. Didn't take the pain away, but it gave him the strength and the vision and the, the, the courage to go on, to face his, his challenges and go on. Is that your experience? Do you have a personal altar? If you don't, you need to build one. Maybe it's in disrepair. You need to maintain it. But your personal altar is where you and God duke it out. That's where you hash it out with God. That's where you cry out to Him. You pour out your complaint to Him, your, your requests, and your, your heart cry, your passions. That's where you do it. You and God. Just you and God alone. And I think it's good to do it verbally. I think it's good to find a spot where you're all by yourself and just open your mouth and just cry aloud to God. It's okay to pray silently, I think, but there's a real value in, in verbalizing, informing your, your thoughts into words that you hear yourself say. And the reason for that is because it forces you to think through what you're actually thinking and feeling. You may be stressed out. You may be uh, maybe you have a difficult decision or maybe there's something big that you're, you're, you're concerned about and you think about that and you, you pray about it silently in your mind and so on. And I think that's useful. But if you, if you force yourself to verbalize, God, I'm angry. 
Or God, I'm really distressed. God, I have a mountain I can't move. You know, you actually form those words and hear yourself saying them and cry out to God. That can be such a release, such a blessing, such a time of worship. And I want to encourage you to, at least from time to time, find a spot where you can openly, out loud, audibly, verbalize your thoughts to God in a, at your personal altar. There is <clears throat> nothing will replace that in your life. I remember as a teenager, we had a speaker at our church, and he was talking to us young people, and really inspiring speaker, and I was really encouraged by him. And, and he said, at a certain point in his message, he said, uh, I have a challenge for you, young, young, young people. Maybe he said young fellows, I forget which. But he said, I have a challenge for you. He said, how many of you would like to do great things for God? Raise your hands. And of course, I was, you know, I'd probably raise both hands. I don't know, but I was, I want to do great things for God. He said, I have a challenge for you. And, and I was, I was listening with both ears. I really wanted to hear what he had to say because I wanted to do it. I was, I was in it. I, I wanted to do everything I could. I was, I was going to pour my heart into whatever he said. I was, I was ready. He said, here's what you do. Read your Bible every day. Is that all? You know, I was, in a sense, let down. I was expecting something, I'm not sure what, something earth-shattering or moving or, you know, different. Or Read your Bible every day. That seemed so mundane to me at the time. But looking back, I realized how important his words were. There is nothing we replace our personal relationship with God. When we pray to him, we read God's word and we meditate on it, and we have that personal relationship with God, and we know God's Word, we study God's Word. It's so important. It needs to be such an integral, integral and vital part of our lives. If we don't have that, that experience at a personal altar, we're missing out on most of what God has for us, if I dare say it that way. We may think, well, I want to do big things for God. I'd like to do big exploits. We will never do the exploits for God unless we start with a vital personal altar with God. Do you have one? How's your altar? Remember, it has to be built, has to be maintained. It won't grow by itself. It won't grow like a tree. It won't bear fruit it, 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 like a tree does. But you have to build it and you have to maintain it. And you have to spend time there and make it an important part of your life. <clears throat> it's, it's, uh, it's so much, a, it's, it's the very basics of the Christian life. I can't emphasize it enough. And, uh, Maybe that seems, seems dull to you too. I don't know. But it shouldn't. You know, if we want to know God's thoughts, the only way that we'll know God's thoughts is if we read them. He's given us his thoughts in his word. These are his thoughts. These are, this is what he's thinking. And the Bible tells us in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. That's an amazing promise. We can ask what we will and he'll, he'll do it. But what's the condition? What's the first part of that verse? Repeat it back to me. What did it say? My words abide in you. What are God's words? They're right here. They're right here. We need to know God's word. We need to be familiar with it. We need to meditate. We need to allow God's word to penetrate our heart and life. And in fact, when Jesus' disciples were out witnessing and preaching and teaching in Luke 10, they were all excited. Remember he sent out 70 disciples two by two? And they were preaching and teaching and miracles were happening. They were casting out devils and lots of exciting things happened. They came back there in Luke 10 and, and they were all excited telling Jesus the things that happened. They were so excited. And Jesus said, uh, let, let me turn to that. <clears throat> I can't quite quote it. 
Luke 10, verse 17. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They were excited. I mean, things were happening. This is a, this is a ministry that was really taking off. In verse 18, Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing that shall by any means hurt you. In other words, he's saying, you had a good time. You had a good experience. It's just the beginning. You're going to experience a lot more like it. You're going to have a lot more wonderful things. But he gives them a warning. He says, nevertheless, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He brought his disciples right back to their personal altar. And that's where, that's where we need to be. That's where we need to get our strength and our direction for ministry and life. It has to begin at our personal altar. Just me and God. Just you and God. No one else. Just the two of you. And the quality of that relationship will determine almost everything else in your Christian life. So maybe that's something for you to think about. You know, maybe there's a struggle. Maybe you have questions. You say, oh, my God. You know, it just seems like God isn't there. Or, you know, God doesn't answer our prayers. And I just want to challenge you. What is the condition of your personal altar? Remember, it has to be what? Tell me. Built and maintained. Let's say it together. Altars have to be and good. I want you to remember that because that's so important in this subject of altars. If we don't take the initiative by the grace of God to establish them in our lives, they're not going to happen. And if, they don't happen, if they're not happening in our lives, we're going to miss out on much of what God has in store for us. <clears throat> Job built an altar in verse, Job 1, verse 5. That's an interesting story there where Job, it says he sent and sanctified his children on a continual basis. Let me read those verses. <clears throat> It says in Job 1, verse 5, It was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them, that's his children, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Job, For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. How many children did Job have? Ten. Ten children. So it says he... He made sacrifices according to the number of them all. What does that mean? How many sacrifices? Ten. Not just one, but ten. Now, how many of you have ever, ever uh, butchered an animal? May I see your hands? I did a chicken once. That's the last time. It's work, right? You get dirty. I mean, it's... it's I didn't know how to do it. You have to learn. Uh... You know, so he did 10 of these on a regular, he says he did it continually. Does that mean every day, every week? I'm not sure, but he did it on a regular, ongoing basis. It was a priority in his life. It was something that he was concerned that happens. It was very important to him, and he went out and did it. And what time of the day did he do it? Early. What time is that? Nine o'clock? Hmm, seven? Six? Four? I don't know what time. It says early in the morning. Early. That means it was important to him. It was something that, that he wanted to do first before anything else came up. His priorities, it tells us a lot about his priorities. 
And for him to have this personal, these personal altars with God, that's a lot of work. You know, you get up in the morning, you have to go out, get your animal ready, and you put it on those altars. For us to connect with God, we, you know, we roll over in bed and we can pray, right? You know, we can have a personal altar right there in bed. Not so with Job. For him, it meant getting dressed, going out. Maybe it was raining, I don't know, cold, whatever. But getting out, picking up the animals, and preparing the animals for sacrifice, putting them on the altars, and physically performing these sacrifices. It took a lot of commitment for him. But it was a very important thing. And it was a blessing for him, because later on, uh, in the same chapter there, God and Satan were in conversation. And remember what God said to Satan? What did he say? Yeah. God was bragging up Job to Satan. Could could God brag you up to Satan? Are you of that kind of spiritual stature that God would brag about you to Satan and says, look at this brother. He's a perfect and upright man. He's complete in his Christian life. You know, he's he's an example of what I want. He's, he's, Job was, God was bragging about Job to Satan. And in a sense, Job, God was hanging his reputation on Job's shoulders. That to me is, is awesome. That God would do that. It's, it's humbling. And I think of myself, would God trust me with that kind of comment? Would he trust his reputation on my shoulders? I'm ashamed to say, I'm not sure he would. He did with Job. What an example. And Satan's complaint, what did Satan say to God then when God said that? Do you remember? Yeah. What was Job's compl- uh, Satan's complaint though? Yeah, he said you put a hedge around him, but what did Satan want to do that he couldn't? Yeah, he couldn't harm him. Couldn't touch him. Why? Because of that hedge. Where'd that hedge come from? Do you think it was Job's personal altar? I think it was. I think Job's experience in verse 5 explains the conversation that God and Satan had in verse 8, 9, and 10. It also explains the severe testing that Job had. And that might scare us off. Well, if that's the kind of testing that's going to come, if I have a personal order like Job did, I'm not interested. But on the other hand, do you want all that God has for you? Do you want His very best in your life? God wants to give His very best, but it must begin in His personal altar, at our personal altar. <clears throat> and at that personal altar is where we gain strength and vision and passion for life. It's where God gives us direction. It's where we get the, the motivation to go on, even if difficulty comes up, or even if, if good times come, and even with, with resources and all kinds of things available to us. If we have an a, a intense and passionate personal altar with God, we're, we're going to be like the Apostle Paul says. He says, I've learned that in whatsoever state I am, to be content, whether there's much or little. So when we have much, it won't affect us in a materialistic way if we have an intense and effective personal order with God. If we have little and we're suffering because we, we have little, we won't, we won't be discouraged or swayed by that if we have a vital personal altar with God. So my challenge to you is, do you have a personal altar? How is your altar? 
Is it something that is giving you life, giving you direction, giving you passion? Or is your relationship with God kind of mm, secondhand, you know, happens occasionally? Maybe you had a personal altar at one time. You made a beginning, but now it's fallen in disrepair. Time to repair it. Time to repair it. Mm. This personal altar is where we find forgiveness. In uh, in John 12, I believe it is, when Mary Magdalene came to Jesus, she was a sinner. Or maybe it's Luke 7, I'm sure. I'm sorry, right now I can't quite get the reference. But it was... Uh, the time when Mary Magdalene came to Jesus and she was a condemned rotten sinner and she knew it. She had done awful acts of sin and, and she was just broken and she was rejected and, and everybody knew she was an awful woman and you know she was just she was an outcast. But she came to Jesus and she was at his feet weeping. Jesus was at the table of a rich man there, Simon, uh, I believe also a Jewish leader or at least a Pharisee and as you know, the way they ate in those days, their, their food was on the floor, essentially, and they had couches around the table, around where the food was, and they laid, stretched out in these couches, leaned on the one arm, and ate with the other. So their feet were out the back. And so Mary Magdalene came in where Jesus was eating with the others there and started and uncovered his feet and started uh, uh, was anointing his feet with this very expensive perfume that she had somehow gotten. And she was crying and she was repenting and and, and Simon, the, the, the ruler of the house, the, uh, the man there, he said he was thinking if Jesus would know how awful this woman is, he wouldn't even allow her to touch him. And Jesus knew Simon's thoughts, and they had a conversation there. And the, the essence of it there is that Mary Magdalene worshipped at Jesus' feet. It was her personal altar. She was crying, confessing her sins to God. And Jesus recognized her repentance. And he asked Simon, he says, who loves most? The one who is forgiven much or little? And Simon said, the one who's forgiven much. And Jesus said, that's this woman. She's been forgiven much. She's, she's, yes, she's a rotten, she was a very bad sinner, but she's repenting and she's forgiven much. And so she loves much. She found forgiveness at her personal altar. She found peace. She found cleansing and purity. And I praise God for that. That's the privilege we have at the personal altar. It's also, not only do we find forgiveness for ourselves, it's where we find grace to forgive others. When others hurt us, when others misuse us, they take advantage of us, they, they say bad stories, they gossip about us, they ruin our reputation, do all kinds of things. People can be so misunderstanding of each other, they really can be. And we hurt each other. And then we realize, oh, what have I done? And it's at that personal altar that we find the grace to pursue the brother we've hurt and be reconciled to him again. And it is our responsibility when we hurt someone to go to them and to make it right. It's, it's, our, it's our duty. It's our opportunity. It's our privilege. But we don't do that of ourselves. We only do that as, God, as we allow the grace of God to empower us and enable us. And we get that power at our personal altar. It's there where we find forgiveness for ourselves and also we, where we extend forgiveness to others 
and share the love of Jesus with them, even if they don't want that forgiveness, but we're still ready to forgive them for what they do against us. How's your altar? Do you have one? Remember, it has to be built and it has to be maintained. It's at that personal altar that most of the things that God wants to have happen in our lives happens. Everything that happens that God wants to use us for is an outgrowth of our personal altar, personal walk with God. <clears throat> so very important. We will never replace it with anything else. It's very foundational and very simple. And I'm sure what I'm sharing to you tonight is something you've heard many times before. And I have no apologies for that because it's, it's something so vital, so basic. Um, some of you play in sports, you know, volleyball and whatever. And I've, uh, I've watched sports play, uh, teams play already. And my observation is this. I'm not an expert. My observation is this. The team that usually wins is the one that does the basics the best. Oh, there's fancy hand tricks and there's other, other strategies too. But if you get away from doing the basics best, let's say you're playing vo volleyball. If you handle the ball the basic way you're supposed to, you're, you're good. <laughs> you're the best. But you, if, when you get away from doing the basics, that's when you start losing. And it's much greater. That's my observation about sports. But it's much greater than that in the Christian life. If we do the basics, uh, we get away from doing the basics, that's when we lose touch with God. And that's when our, our, our uh, vitality with God drops away. So that's the personal altar. Secondly here in Deuteronomy 6, we have the family altar. It says here in verse 7, Thou shalt teach them, that's the commandments of God, the words of God, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Teach them diligently. In the Romanian translation, it says, teach with points. And actually, I think that's the most correct translation if you go back and, and look in Strong's Concordance. I think it says something similar to that in Strong's Concordance as well. Teach with points. What does that mean? Think of a fish hook. When you're fishing with a hook, that is, and you throw the hook in the water, you cast it, and you, a fish bites the hook. What is it that keeps the fish on the hook? What is it? The barb. It's the point, right? Without that point, the fish can get lost pretty easily, I think, I guess. But with that barb on there, it catches the inside of his mouth and he can't, can't get away from it. That's how we are to teach our children with points. So it sticks and they can't get away from it. It just follows them. It's a part of them and they don't even want to be away from it. Thou shalt teach the commands of God diligently or with points. Now I have a paper here with some things written on it. And you could give me an eraser and I could erase what's on here and you'd have a clean sheet of paper. That's because it's written in pencil. I have another paper here with some other things written on it that you cannot erase with, a, with an eraser. And what's the difference? Yeah. Even with a laser printer, it's burned on there. And once it's burned on that paper, you can't take it away with just erasing it. The only way you could remove the writing from that paper is by rubbing a hole in it. 
And that's how we are to teach our children that this, this, uh, the commands of God are so much a part of their lives that the only way to take that teaching away is to destroy them. That they, they, will, not, they will not depart from the teachings of God, the commands of God. Now our children have, have choices of their own to make, and I recognize that. <clears throat> but I want to also add that we as parents have a lot to do with helping our children understand God's ways and adopting them for their own. We have a lot to do by our example, by our own passions, our own lives, and by the things that we do. And the family altar is the place to make that happen. I want to encourage and challenge you with this family altar. Teach our children. It says, Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Do we ever have any time off? No, we're always on the go. I mean, it's, it's always on. It's never off. Some years ago, uh, Linda, as you know, came from northern Indiana. So from Pennsylvania, we would travel there frequently and visit there. And, and one of our young sons, we were trying to teach him to read his Bible every day and, and so on. And so we were on this trip to Indiana and somebody, I think one of the older children, asked him, you have your Bible? No, he said he didn't bring his Bible. Said, well, why didn't you bring your Bible along? He said, well, I'm off. We're on vacation. And that's how we are sometimes. You know, we're, we're, we're off. We're on vacation. And I want to challenge us. We're never off. We're never off. And I'm concerned, and I don't, I don't know you people, so I'm saying this without any knowledge of what happens here, but I'm concerned about families going on vacation, for example, and church becomes second, uh, doesn't really happen. You know, oh, you have a little bit of a Bible study at the cabin or, you know, you, you get together and you, you have a prayer or something Sunday morning. But somehow on vacation, church doesn't matter as much. And I wonder why. Should vacation have any effect on our relationship with God or as a family? Should, I mean, should it affect our family worship at all? It should enhance it, not detract away from it. You know, or... Here's another thing, and this is my pet peeve, I guess, but, you know, I, so we travel somewhere and, and uh, we need to get to work Sunday, uh, Monday morning, so guess what? We travel home on Sunday, right? So we don't miss work Monday morning. And what happens to church? Maybe we listen to a, a sermon in the car or something, you know, but really, is, is that what God has in mind? Is that... You know, we're talking about something that has to be maintained. A family altar has to be maintained. It won't grow by itself. It won't happen automatically. We have to make it happen. And here it says we're to, uh, we're to have this worship experience all the time when we, uh, we're to be talking about God's ways to our children. When we sit in the house, when we walk by the way, we lie down and we rise up. doesn't matter if we're on vacation or what, but it should always be an important part of our lives. My mother was a widow. My father passed away before I could remember him. So I grew up as, uh, as a fatherless child in my mother's home. She was a widow. And the thing that she impressed me in many ways, she passed away in May, by the way, and she was a, 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 a wonderful woman of prayer to, for me through the years. But uh, when I was young, I remember my older siblings needed to get up early to go to work. I don't remember the time. I just remember it was early. And my mother, uh, being as rigid as she was, forced us all to get out of bed so we could all have family worship together before my older siblings went off to work. And then we could go back to bed if we wanted to. Don't you think she was just a tad mean? 
I thought she was a little extreme at the time. But you know, I look back and I realize she was teaching us something that's very valuable. The, the importance of family worship. It was important to her that it happened. And she made it happen. And she forced us to adjust our schedule so it happens. She forced us even to accept inconveniences so that it happened. It was very important to her, and I appreciate that. I thanked her for it many times. That was, a, that was an example to me. And that actually left a legacy for me, and it teaches me about the importance of family worship in my own home. And I, I just encourage us to make family worship happen and make it an important part of our lives. I'd like to ask you, I'm not going to, but I'd like to ask you, how many of you... Have, of you have had family worship five times out of the last seven days. You know, How regular is your family worship? Does it happen? I think it's best when it can happen in the morning, but I realize there's schedules. You know, it used to be we had pretty much of a farming economy where a lot of our people would, you know, you'd go out in the morning and do the chores, milk the cows and come back for breakfast seven o'clock or so, then you can have your family worship around the breakfast table and the day would go on. Now we live in an economy where a lot of us have jobs, and we're in the job by 5.30, 6 o'clock. And so are we going to get our family out of bed at 5 o'clock, uh, like my mother did? I don't know what time it was. It was really early. Uh, but all I'm saying is that we, we need to make it happen. If it doesn't happen in the morning, it should happen sometime during the day when we're all together as a family. That should always be our goal. And I realize there's going to be times when it can't happen, and it won't happen, but uh, it should be a priority that we, that we make it Make it work, make it happen, because it's at that family altar is where our children will, will hear our heart cry to God. Your children need to hear you praying. They need to hear you singing. They need to hear you reading the Word of God. I, I talk to young people and they say, I never heard my father pray. If that's true, if your children ever heard you pray, I, I, my heart goes out to them. They need to hear you pray. They need to hear you cry out to God and ask God for for help, for answers. And then when God answers those prayers, see, when you pray to God, God answers prayers, right? And you can demonstrate God to you in a powerful way as you pray to Him and God answers your prayers. Make it a celebration. Make sure your children know that God answered your prayers. You prayed and God answered. Make sure that they understand and know that. Make that a family event when prayers are answered. Make it a big deal because it is a big deal. Family worship is an, should be an exciting time. It has the potential of being the the highlight of your family's day, if you make it that. But it can be something humdrum, something mediocre, something we do because, well, we know we should. We heard a speaker and said we should do it, so I guess we'll try, you know. No, make it something that's vital, something that's alive, something that's, that you can look forward to and, and have an exciting time. If you have teenagers and adult children in your house, you can have some wonderful discussions around your family altar. You can bring up topics and bring up issues of the day and you know, hash them out around your family altar. What a wonderful way to do that. What a wonderful time to teach, teach God's ways to our children and, and help them to think through what God's principles mean and how we should apply them. And it's a good time for them to ask questions. One of the scary things, and you can probably identify with this, is when your children start asking questions you don't want to answer. You know, they ask questions that you wonder, what are you thinking? <laughs> you going off the deep end, you know, where's your, what are your thoughts here? You know, let's not get too far away from, from what's tried and true. But remember, when you and I were teenagers, we struggled, we had issues, and we, we, we asked questions, hard questions, and we wanted answers. And we, we, we were willing to even be extreme in order to get people to respond to us. Our children are the same way. 
And when that happens, don't let that discourage you. Don't let that scare you. But take that as an opportunity. When they ask questions, hard questions, probing questions, they say, well, why do we do this? How come should we do that? You know, what does this mean? Allow them to express their heart, express their questions, and, and then together go to the Word of God and find answers. And by the Holy Spirit, let the Holy Spirit give you understanding together so that you're, you're soldiers together in the same trench fighting against the same enemy instead of soldiers against each other. You know what I'm talking about? The family altar is a great place to cultivate that and to, to make that happen. And I want to challenge you. Family altars have to be what? Built and maintained. They won't grow by themselves. They're not like a tree. You have to build them and maintain them. God has much to say about protection, about the family. I did mention Job. You know, when he prayed for his family, he says he sent and sanctified them. That word sanctified means called out. Or it's a special consecration and dedication. It's not just a casual prayer. God, protect my children today or whatever. But it's, 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 it's specifically asking God and consecrating your children to God in a specific way, on a regular basis. And that will defeat Satan. Satan tells us that in Job. He said to God, he says, I can't touch him because you have this hedge of protection around him. And, and that came about because of Job's prayers for himself and for his family. And when you pray, when you you like Job, have these, you sanctify your children, you pray for them and with them. You are building a protection around your family that Satan will not be able to cross unless God gives special permission. And I remember the day when I first discovered that. Such a revelation, such a blessing. I want to challenge you. Pray a hedge of protection around your family every day. Don't fail. Pray a hedge every day. And always pray in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus because it's only in the name of Jesus and by his blood that we have any power, any credibility at all with Satan. We have no credibility with Satan whatsoever except through the name of Jesus. And so when we pray and ask God to put this hedge around our family, always pray in the name of Jesus. And, and say those words. There's nothing magic necessarily, but Satan hates to hear the name of Jesus. He just hates it. And so give him what he hates. <laughs> Make it hard for him. S send him trembling. Don't, don't be apathetic or laid back in your, in, your, uh, in your approach, but be proactive against him and pray this hedge of protection around your family and against the evil one because he's going to destroy your family if it all can. He's out there looking for holes, looking for places to get through. He wants to impact you and your family. If you let him, he'll destroy you. But I want to encourage you, don't let him. And you don't have to let him. You're much stronger than he is in the name of Jesus with the power of God. And so I want to encourage you to pray a hedge of protection around your family every day. This will give a protection, a spiritual protection to your family that you won't have any other way. And you will be blessed by it. Trust me, you will be. <clears throat> in uh, Deuteronomy 22.8, It says there, this is instructions that Moses gave to the Israelites when he was getting ready to leave them. He says, when thou buildest a new house, this is Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When thou buildest a new house, then thou shalt make a battlement for thy roof. Do you know what a battlement is? What's a battlement? It's a fence. It's a fence. When thou buildest a new house, then thou shalt make a fence for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thine house, if any man fall from fence. And so what they had here, they would build their houses in that setting, in that culture, 
and a lot of times, maybe not always, but they would have a flat roof. And during the day, it get pretty hot, pretty warm. And I, I know from living in other cultures, a mud house, a mud hut can be quite cool indoors during the day. And in the heat of the day, when the sun is shining hot, it can be relatively cool inside a mud hut. But in the, in the cool of the day then, and in, in, in the, I was never in Palestine myself, some of you have been there, but understand it can get quite warm in the afternoon. And so as the evening breezes then come in off the Mediterranean Sea, then this is a cooling breeze. And so what they would do, they would like to go up in their house roofs and relax at the end of the day and, and cool off. And, and there would, they would visit with friends and families and, you know, it'd be a place to be together with other people and socialize. And Moses said, when you build your house, you put a fence around your roof. So that when you go up there, you don't have blood in your hands. What's he saying? He's simply saying that if somebody falls off your house roof, who's responsible? You are, right? That's what he's saying. So you protect yourself. You put a, you put a, a hedge up there, a, a battlement, a fence around your house roof so that when children play there, they're not going to fall off and hurt themselves. When somebody, it's, so, so that you're actually protecting life. You're, you're, it's a protection for yourself. That's, that's what a family altar does. That's what a family altar can do. It, it can be a protection for you and your children. Now, here in your setting, you have a school here, and I, I appreciate that. I applaud that. I commend you for that. I think having a Christian school is a wonderful vision, and I, I certainly support and commend that. There are communities where a Christian school is not available, and so children go to public school or you know whatever the options are. And in our society, in our culture today, there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of voices that are anti-godly. Voices that, um, that uh, are okay with divorce and remarriage. Voices that are okay with evolution or forms of evolution, theistic evolution or whatever. Uh, voices that accept homosexuality. There's all kinds of influences and voices out there. And your children growing up are going to hear those voices. They're going to maybe respond to them. They're going to, be, to even be influenced by them. And it's important that we use our family altar to fortify them and teach them so that when they hear those other voices... They're going to know the truth instantly. They won't be swayed away because they have, they, you, they have received the truth at your family altar in your home. But if, if, if you're not faithful in giving your children teaching, even your young children, your little children, if you're not faithful in giving them teaching and showing them the Word of God, then when they hear those voices, they're going to become confused. They're going to say, well, what is truth? See, in society today, they, they, they tend away from... from uh, at least they used to, uh, say, you don't tell the child what to believe. You teach him the options and let him choose. That used to be the, the, uh, the approach in education. Maybe it still is. I'm not sure, Brother Milo. Is that still how it works? Or uh, maybe they've moved on to the postmodernist uh, stance where they want you to believe that homosexuality is okay. And if you don't believe that, they're going to try to influence you and make you believe that. So maybe they've moved on from that. But what I'm saying is that <clears throat> We dare not let our children make their own choices uh, in, insofar as that approach. We, we're just telling them, look, this is what people believe you choose. We need to help them what to, to teach them what to think. We need to help them think. We want them to think, and then we need to teach them to think rightly and think according to God's, God's principles and God's ways. And that can happen at the family altar. And I would encourage you, again, make your family altar an exciting time of the day for you. Uh, you know, make it a, a time when the whole family is involved. Now, that can be a challenge. For a while, we had 10 children, you know, ages from 1 to 22. 
in our home. And so it was, it was kind of a challenge to have a family worship where everybody could get involved. And so you have to be creative. You have to change up. You know, sometimes you have to say to the older ones, okay, we're going to focus on something the younger ones are going to enjoy a little more, but you be patient and stick with us. And then you have to change focus sometimes and say to the younger ones, okay, you can color with your crayons here, but you be listening because while we're discussing things with the older ones, you have to get them involved in some way and be creative. And if, you know, you're going to get to the point where you say, can't do this. Don't ever quit. Don't ever quit. You know, if, if you're not getting through, don't, don't be discouraged. Keep trying. Keep trying. There's two kinds of parents. You may have heard this before. It's not good parents and bad parents because we're all bad parents in a sense. We've all failed in different ways. So it's not good and bad. The two kinds of parents are parents that quit and those that don't. Some parents get discouraged and say, they just quit. Quit trying. Other parents, even though we fail, even though they fail, they keep on. They repent and they keep on going. That's the kind of parents I want us to be, all of us. I want us to, to not quit. And so maybe your family altar is, ah, needs a little repairs. Maybe it's not quite there where you want it to be. Make that, let that be a motivation for you to dig in and make it more vital, more exciting. And ask your children, you know, what, what can we, uh, what would you like to do? Maybe it's older children. Can we, you know, maybe you want to listen to a speaker for a while, uh, a series of tapes. I don't know, whatever, but use your creativity and, and use the Word of God and teach the Word of God. And when your children are young, you have a special opportunity to teach them the Bible stories. I have the, the blessed opportunity of having had a godly mother who taught me the Bible stories. Most of the Bible stories I know because my mother taught them to us. And she just told them again and again and again. She'd go through the Bible and just tell us the stories. And I became very familiar with them because of her. And I commend her. I, I appreciate her for that. And I want to encourage you, especially your young children, tell them the Bible stories. Use your own words. They really like that. But even if you don't use your own words and read a Bible story, book, or route of the Bible, emphasize two things to them. Number one, tell them what happened to the man that did not obey God. There's a cause and effect. There's a consequence for disobedience. Your young children need to learn that. And they need to see that from the Word of God. So when you tell them about Ahab and Jezebel, you know, tell them how all the wicked things they did, at least some of them, and then how God judged that, how God punished them for their wickedness. Or when you t tell them about Noah and the flood, you know, tell them how Noah was faithful. Oh, two things. One thing, tell them what happened to the man that disobeyed God and also emphasize what happened to the man that obeyed God. And so when you tell the story of Noah, you know, emphasize how, how Noah got this word from God and he believed God. It didn't make sense to build a boat uh, the way he did because it had never rained before. At that time, just dew came out of the ground. There wasn't rain. And God said, it's going to be so much rain, it's going to be a flood. Flood. Who ever heard of a flood? He was mocked. And yet Noah was faithful. He obeyed God and did what God told him. And he was blessed. But all the people that mocked God and mocked Noah and made fun of him, they were judged very severely. Make sure your children understand that. And do that with all the Bible stories. Just tell them again and again what happened to the man that obeyed God and what happened to the man that disobeyed God. That will give them a fear of God. That will help them understand that God is somebody I have to deal with whether I want to or not. It doesn't matter whatever I do in my life. It doesn't matter what choices I make. I have to deal with God. It will give them a healthy fear, help to give them a healthy fear of God. And so make your family altar a, a, a time of vital worship, a time of interest, enthusiasm, and joy. And you're not, it's not always going to be the same. There's going to be times you're going to say, oh, I guess I blew it that time. But don't quit. Keep on going. You know, and wives, pray for your husbands and you know, 
sons and daughters, pray for your dads. You know, they may be struggling and they may have issues that they're trying to deal with. Pray for them and encourage them and help them. Make it easy for them. But by all means, have a family altar. Again, it has to be built. It won't grow by itself. How is your family altar? Is it what God wants it to be? Are there areas that you can improve on? Is, is God wanting you to make a change? Maybe it has to be maintained. Maybe it has to be rebuilt. Started again. <clears throat> it's something that can fall by the way very easily, especially as, as our children get to be older and they have their own schedules, their own jobs and their own things going, you know, youth group and whatnot all. Uh, there's so many distractions. Satan does not want you to have an effective family altar because he knows the, the potential good that can come at your family altar. He knows that and he wants to prevent that. So he's going to try all sorts of things to, to bring distractions into your life to make so it doesn't happen. But don't allow that to happen. Don't yield to him, but yield only to God and, and allow God to use you to minister to your children. I think it's important that our children learn the ways of God. And it's great you have them here at church. It's great you have them at a Christian school. Those things are, are good, Sunday school and all, but no one will ever replace you as parents in your children's lives. No one. God has called us as parents to be the primary teachers in our children's lives. It says, fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in nurture and admonition of the Lord. It doesn't say preachers. It doesn't say Sunday school teachers. It doesn't say babysitters. It says fathers. That's given to parents. It's given to fathers. And it's our first responsibility. And I think it's something we have to, to maintain as a very important priority in our lives. <clears throat> so that's the family altar. Psalm 78. Let me turn to that yet. Speaks here of, it makes reference to what I'm calling a family altar. Verse 2, Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter, utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Notice the progression of generations here. Our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. Notice what we're showing to our posterity. The praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. That happens at your family altar. Actually, one of the reasons I'm a Christian, I've often said this, and I, uh, I just appreciate my mother so much. As a widow, she had many needs. Life wasn't easy for her. And although I didn't know that much about it as a young child, I just trusted in her and she would take care of us. But I would often hear her pray. And I noticed, began to notice as a growing child that when she prayed, God answered her prayers. I noticed that. That was an important revelation to me. And as, as a young boy, I decided I want to serve the same God she does because he answers prayer. I discovered that at, at the family altar she established in her home. As I heard her pray and saw God answer those prayers, that was such an example to me. And you can do the same for your children. They need to hear you pray and see God answering those prayers. And they need to, to hear you give praises to God. What's it say here? Showing to the generation to come the praises of God, His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. Show God off to your children and 
use your family altar to do that. That the, verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. So notice here the multiple generations here. We learned it from our fathers. We passed it on to our children. And our children are going to have children someday. And their children are going to have children. So that what you're teaching now to your, fa- your children, your family altar, your great-grandchildren will hear someday. Right? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a teaching program that goes on and on and on. And we as fathers, sometimes we think about legacies. You know, we, uh, we, we think about what we're going to leave behind, what, what others will enjoy because of us after we leave. You know, maybe houses, maybe cars, maybe resources, maybe I don't know what. But really, in the ultimate sense, there's really nothing matters as far as what we give our children, except a family altar. Right now, I'm, I'm working for a landscaper part-time. And we're working at a, at a place where they just built a, a riding arena for uh, riding horses. They have a name for it. Uh, you know more about it than I do. They spent 700000 to build this barn for a riding rink for these horses. And I'm thinking, very soon it's going to burn. Very soon it won't even be here. What a waste of resources. What a, what a short-term legacy to leave behind. <laughs> you know, anything we give our children is going to burn. Nothing's going to last. It's going to be gone. Except if we give them the legacy of a family altar, that would be something that they can take to their children and grandchildren and can pass it on even long after we're gone. I just think it's very important. I want to challenge you. How's your altar? You have one. How's your family altar? Is it a, an effective family altar? It has to be built. It won't grow by itself. Maybe it has to be maintained. That's calls for our responsibility too. It won't maintain itself. We have to do it. We have to keep it up. Thirdly, here it talks about a public altar. Verse 8, Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. What they would do here, these frontlets is talking about, they would take, take parchments, a little piece of animal skin, and write sections of the law from God's Word, the law the, the, and the prophets. They had the law and the prophets in those days. Well, they actually only had the law when this is given here in Deuteronomy 6. And so they would take portions of Scripture and write it on these little parchments of skin and put it in a little box and tie it in their foreheads. That was a frontlet between their eyes where they put it on their wrist. And they'd go out in the public with these little boxes on their forehead. How would you young fellows like if your dad walked out, went to work with a little box in his forehead? But see, that box was a public testimony. When, when you went to the market and you saw these men walking around with boxes on their heads, you knew they were men of God. That was their public expression of their faith. That was them saying, I love God. This is, God is important to me. And I want you to know that God is important to me. That's a public altar. That's what it talks about here. It says, frontlets between your eyes. Uh, write them on, and also write them on the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Recently I was in India and I was speaking to a a group of uh, Christians there who had recently come from Hinduism. 
And uh, we had a wonderful time actually sharing about this very thing here. And in the audience was a Catholic priest. And afterward, he gave some really encouraging words. He encouraged his people to be at our conference. And so it was good having them there. We had a really good time. And he, uh, in his, his remarks at the end of the conference, he said, and, oh, by the way, wear a cross everywhere you go. That's a public testimony of your faith. Put a cross on your house. And uh, I, I inwardly groaned. I didn't realize I was promoting Catholic doctrine when I was giving this teaching. But <clears throat> I, as I thought about what he said, though, in that culture, having a few crosses around would have been a good idea. There were Hindu idols everywhere. There was just evidences of idol worship and Hinduism and you know all and all the stuff that goes with it they're they're idolatry just everywhere in public and everywhere and a few crosses here and there would have been a sigh, would have been a breath of fresh air you know some public expressions of of the Christian faith and so what are your public expressions do your colleagues know that you're a Christian do they know why you serve God do they uh, do, do you speak to them about the word of God are you free to speak to them about uh, your public expressions of your faith. Maybe the, the way you present yourself in public. Maybe the way you spend your money. Maybe the places you go. The, the kind of uh, just the things that you do that are important to you. Your lifestyle. You know, all those things should speak. Should be public expressions of, of our faith to God. We should not be ashamed. Jesus said if we're ashamed of him and his words, he's going to be ashamed of us. So I ask you, how's your public altar? Do you have one? Do your people, your, do people around you know you live for God? You know, do your neighbors understand that you are a Christian? I trust they do. And again, I, I don't think I'm telling you anything new, but I just mean this as an encouragement and a challenge. How is your public altar? Um, recently, I was driving along the road, and uh, you have to know this, I guess. You have to know that I despise cats. I just don't like cats. And I'll, I'll, this public disclosure, the reason is when I was a boy growing up, we fed birds. And we loved watching the birds out back behind our house. We had all kinds of songbirds, bird nests. And occasionally a neighborhood cat would come around and just make a haul. Oh, we just hated that cat. We just hated the guts. We hated the ground she walked on because she took off with our birds. So, okay, you, you understand my distaste for cats. So I was driving along the road, and there's a cat ran across the road in front of me. Well, so what's the temptation, right? You step on it and try and hit the cat. Well, after I did that, I looked over and realized the people who owned the cat were standing in the yard right there. Oh. What if on the side of my car I had a sign that said, Jesus is Lord. What do you think they'd have thought of my Lord when I was trying to kill their cat, Right? You know, or what if, you know, in the, my bumper sticker or something that would have been in, on the back said, follow me to my church in the name of the church. You think they'd be interested in my church? No. See, my, my public altar needed some repairs. It really did. It really does matter how we conduct ourselves in public. And I, we need to be sincere. It needs to be genuine and real. God has no time for, for hypocrites. He has no time for us to be uh, for us to be hypocritical and, and pretend to be something we're not. See, it starts with our personal altar. If we have a, a vital, living, 
a passionate relationship with God and a personal altar, it fills up our heart, it fills up our life, and then it spreads to our family. We have a family altar that's vital, it's living, it's alive, and there's things happening there, then it spills out in our public altar. That's the way it's supposed to work. And that's the way it does work if we allow God to make it work that way. But I caution you against putting on a public face to hide a rotting core. Jesus had issue with the Pharisees. He said, you hypocrites, you're just whited sepulchers. You're just whited tombs. You stink inside. You're full of rotten, smelly bones, but on the outside, you want to make yourself look pretty. And sometimes we are that way. God has no time for that at all. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is something that's genuine. It flows out of our heart and just impacts people around us just because we're full of the power of God, just because we can't keep God to ourselves anymore. Remember what happened in Luke 8 with the demoniac there? Tremendous story. Jesus taking his disciples across the Sea of Galilee there and gotten out. Jesus stepped out and met with this, met this demonic, this demon-possessed man, actually two of them. And they were there, it says they didn't have clothes and they were full of devils and they tried to chain them with chains. They just broke the chains. They were awful. They were horrible men. You know, just the, the, the worst of the worst you could imagine. And Jesus came in contact with these, this, these men and transformed them. Changed their lives. Absolutely changed their lives. There in Luke 8, it just mentions the one. The other Gospels mentions two, but in Luke 8, it mentions one. His, his life is transformed, totally changed. And the, the townspeople were amazed. In fact, they, they pled with Jesus to leave because of all that had happened. Their pigs were destroyed. Their economic you know, prosperity was gone. And, and they were afraid if Jesus stays around, a lot of worse things are going to happen. They pled with Jesus to get out of here and leave. And so Jesus left. And this man wanted to leave with Jesus. said, please, may I go with you? And what a wonderful opportunity. Here's a brand new convert. You know, he could have been just such an asset to Jesus' ministry. Been one of the you know, 12, maybe a, maybe a disciple of one of the 12, where he's mentored and, you know, prayed with and taught and so on. But Jesus said, no, you don't come with me. You go back to your people. Tell them what happened to you. You remember that story? And what happened the next time Jesus came back to that area? What happened? Yeah. They were waiting for him. They couldn't wait to have him back because there's one man back there couldn't keep quiet about what happened with him. Are you that man? Are you that woman that can't keep quiet about your Lord? Are you sharing Christ with people that you meet? Do they know by your verbal witness that you're a Christian? Are you sharing the gospel with people that you work with on the street, in the store? You know, let's be free to share the gospel. Let's be free in our public expression of our faith. Let's not hide it. Jesus said, if we're going to be ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of us. Let that be a warning and a motivation to us. We have nothing to hide. We have the good news. The good news is that Jesus came to earth and died for our sins. He went to hell for us. People around us are going to hell. They're dying in their sins. Some of them are deceived. They don't know they're in their sins. Some of them are not deceived and don't care. But some are in their sins and don't know. They need someone to tell them. And we meet those people. They're our friends. They're our acquaintances. They're our relatives. They're people we work with. They're people that we see and we can talk to. Do they know the way to salvation? Are we free in sharing our public faith? Our, 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 are we, is our public, do we have a public altar? Is it well maintained? Remember, we have to build it. It won't grow by itself. It has to be built and has to be maintained. 
And I know that people are watching us, and sometimes we goof. Sometimes we do stupid things. Uh, you know, and, and, and people just shake their head and say, I didn't know Christians do that. You know, when that happens to us, we need to simply repent. We need to say, I'm sorry. That's not the way Christ is supposed to act. That's not the way of Christ. I had the opportunity some time ago sharing with a Muslim couple. They came to the place where I was working and we got in a conversation and I got to ask them about their faith and I was sharing them about the way of Christ, the way of peace. And I wanted them to understand that Jesus is not a man of war. He's not a man of, of strife. He's not a man of, of, uh, of, of damage and, and so on. He's a man of peace and love. I wanted them to understand that. And, and she, after conversing, conversing for a while, she said, that's not what I understand from most Christians. That's a sad commentary where her perspective on Christianity is of violence, self-seeking, materialism. That's sad. And maybe she'll get to hell because somebody gave her the wrong picture of Christianity. And so it's, it's up to us to be God's hands and God's feet. There's people around us that will never go to church. Maybe not. They'll never read a Bible. Maybe not. But they watch you. They see you. They read you. I guess my question is, what is the gospel according to you? When people read you, are they reading the true gospel? How's your public altar? How are your public expressions of faith? Don't be ashamed. Don't hide <clears throat> what God is doing in your life. Even with non-believers, feel free to share with them that you prayed and God answered your prayer. Don't be ashamed of it. I mean, just, just share with people. Let them know that God is at work in your life. Make them curious. Make them jealous. Because they have a God that does not answer prayer. Our God does. They have a God that doesn't hear what they have to say. Our God does. We have, we have something valuable to share. We have the good news. Let's be faithful in sharing it. Let's not hide it. Keep it to ourselves. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a good reminder for us how that first the priest and then the Levite, two men that should have known better, two men who were leaders in the church, two men who knew the law, who knew God, presumably, who knew the way of to God, who knew the way about God. They, 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 being the priest, he probably had a major portions of the law memorized. Maybe the Levite did too. They were very familiar with God's law, and yet they came along and refused, this is the parable, refused to help the man that had great need. But here comes a Samaritan, the despised Samaritan, the one that was looked down on, the one that had nothing to give, at least the way the, the, a lot of people would have thought. He's the one that helped this man to life. Let's be that good Samaritan. Let's be the one that brings people the good news and not hold it back. He freely shared of his own resources and he, he, he made, he made uh, provisions for this man so that he would be okay. <clears throat> of course, that was in a physical sense. But we have people around us that have spiritual needs. And I know you're ministering to them in your community. I want to bless you for that. You have your, your, your clubs that you have and you have other outreaches, summer Bible school and different missions you're involved in. That's great. I want to commend you for that. And I don't mean to, to minimize that at all and make you feel guilty because that's what God is, is asking us to do. 
That's, that's our public altar. And I think it's also important in our, just our private, or our conversations, one-on-one conversations, the people around us, that we share Jesus with them too, and that they know that Jesus is real to us. So we have three altars. The personal altar, the family altar, the public altar. How's your altars? Remember, altars have to be built, they have to be maintained. And I want to encourage you and bless you in your altars. I want to give you an opportunity to just respond by raising your hands. I just, uh, I just, just want to know, uh, just as a public witness for yourself and for God, you know, has God spoken to you about anything at all? Are there areas in your life that, that God is asking you to, to, to grow in? Just as a public testimony, raise your hand if God has spoken to you in any way. God bless you. God bless you. I just wish you the God's blessings, and I want you to take the word of God and allow it to sink in your heart and just live it and be what God wants you to be.